Every single one of us needs to take forgiveness and reconciliation seriously. This week, Emily and I uh, watched a compelling drama on TV. It's called Sherwood, and you'll find it on the BBC iPlayer. The drama is set in a Nottinghamshire mining village. It's essentially a, a murder mystery set in the present day, but the backdrop to it all is the miners' strike of 84 and 85. Now you may think, well, what possible relevance can the events of 40 years ago have on a Nottinghamshire village today? But the answer to that is every relevance. For 40 years, the animosity and the resentment has never gone away. For 40 years, the division has remained and the bitterness has festered. For 40 years, there has been no forgiveness and no reconciliation. And perhaps the saddest thing about the drama is the opening screen of each episode, which tells you that the drama is based on true events. Now, many of you will remember the miners' strike. The unions took to the picket line to protest against planned government closure of the pits. But as the strike went on, some miners chose to go back to work because they just could not afford to live otherwise. And that breaking of the picket line caused huge anger. Those who stayed on strike blamed those who returned for the union's failure and the loss of their jobs. Now, I won't ruin the drama for you, but there's a very powerful scene in the final episode. It takes place in an old miners' club, and present are the miners from both sides of that strike. And for the first time, they sit and they listen to each other. They give their motivations for why they stayed out on strike or why they returned to work. It's difficult to watch. So much tension, so much raw emotion and honesty. Hard things have to be said. Hard things have to be listened to. For the first time in 40 years, many people in the community are forced to truly confront the issue and the errors that were made. Now, there's no fairy tale ending. No, they all lived happily ever after. The issue is far too deep for that. But there are the first shoots of new life, the first glimpses of what reconciliation can look like. After the necessary confrontation of the past, the drama ends with hope for the future. Go home and watch Sherwood for yourselves. It's, it's brilliant. But it's not just the massive issues of history that need our attention. In our daily lives, we need to be ready to take the hard steps of reconciliation. This week, I lost my temper on a phone call. I'm not proud of it. At the time, I felt I had really good reason to be annoyed. If I'm truly honest, I still do. But I should have handled it differently. There were heated words, there were raised voices, and I confess that I ended up the call by hanging up abruptly. And immediately I knew I couldn't leave it like that. The relationship involved was too important not just for me, but for many others as well. And I knew I'd have to ring back, but not until I'd processed some of the emotion. Five hours it took me 
to regain my composure. Five hours trying to work out why I was so angry and upset and, and working out what I could do to put it right. Later that evening, I did ring back. I knew I couldn't leave overnight. I apologised for my loss of temper. And I also explained why I was so upset. And thankfully, they listened to this and apologised in return. And by the end of that phone call, we pulled things back together. We'd moved on. And I look forward to seeing them at some point and embracing with them. Now, I don't tell you that so you think I'm a saint. I am not. You would not have wanted to hear me on the phone. I simply tell you that story to show you that the issue of forgiveness and reconciliation is one that affects all of our lives on a daily basis. We must take this seriously. It's always hard but we can see the results of not doing it. Broken marriages, shattered families, feuding neighbours, divided churches, all of these are tragic and painful. Now our reading today is all about forgiveness and reconciliation. It could not be more relevant. And in this sermon I'm going to use the passage to answer three very practical questions. What is forgiveness? What is the inspiration for forgiveness? And what are the consequences of unforgiveness? We'll take them in that order, starting with the question, what is forgiveness? When a difficulty in a relationship arises, many of us prefer to pretend that there isn't a problem. We try to carry on as normal, we try to swallow our anger, if things have been really bad, we may try to ignore the person for a little while, assuming that in good time, everything will be all right again. In reality, this approach is just papering over the cracks. And more often than not, it is disastrous. As Christians, we are particularly tempted by this papering over the cracks option. In fact, many of us believe that's what forgiveness means. We believe that the right thing to do is to pretend that everything's okay and that the person involved, well, they haven't really done anything wrong. But this just won't do. If someone has been offensive or hurtful, bullying or dishonest, aggressive or immoral towards us, nothing is going to be gained by trying to create reconciliation without confronting the real evil that has been done. Forgiveness does not mean saying it did not really happen or it did not really matter. Because forgiveness is required when it did happen and it did matter. Forgiveness occurs when you choose to confront an evil but in a loving way. So the answer to our question, what is forgiveness, is that forgiveness is not necessarily about forgetting. It is about choosing to deal with a difficult situation and once it is dealt with, not allow it to affect the ongoing relationship that you have with that person. And the first verses of our reading in Matthew 18, 15 to 20 give us the model for how to go about this difficult forgiveness. They show us how to deal with disagreement with both clarity and honesty. And like in Sherwood, and like in my phone calls this week, 
Sometimes we just have to get to the bottom of a problem. We have to lay our issues square on the table. We have to express our hurt while all the time trying to see the issue from the other person's point of view as well. And what I like about the Bible's instruction here is that it's both really practical and also full of hope. Jesus tells us that when a problem has occurred, we're to go personally and try and sort it out. We need to go to the person who has hurt us. We need to go humbly. We need to go prayerfully. We need to go ready to listen as well as to accuse. But we need to go to them. If that initial conversation doesn't result in uh, apology and forgiveness, then we take someone with us and we try to speak to them again. Now that witness isn't there to try and hammer them into submission. It's there to challenge us as well if need be. We may be blinkered by the hurt that we feel. If that doesn't work, then we invite a wider part of the church to help us resolve the issue. And notice how the desire through these verses is not punishment, it's not personal vindication, it's reconciliation. Jesus teaches us that when we confront an issue and we deal with it well, it will create a stronger bond between the two parties than was there even before. Of course, if there's a refusal to deal with the issue, sadly, fellowship becomes broken. What other option is there? But the offending party is still to be treated with love and the hope of future reconciliation some way. Jesus told his disciples to treat them like a, a pagan or a tax collector. Jesus loved pagans and tax collectors. He spent the whole of his ministry trying to bring them back in to his family. So can you see there's a really clear message in these verses? Reconciliation only comes about when you face the situation, not when you run away from it. Forgiveness only comes after difficult work has been done. And that's why God promises to be with us while we're doing it, to help us through the process. Verse 20 says, where two or three gather in my name, doing this work of reconciliation, there am I with them. So this is true forgiveness, not just papering over the cracks, not carrying on boldly while bitterness festers inside you. Forgiveness involves challenging the evil, and then once dealt with, choosing not to allow the past to affect your relationship going forwards. So on to question two. What is the inspiration for forgiveness? It's because forgiveness can be such hard work that Peter asked Jesus, well, how many times should I be prepared to go through this challenging process with the same person? before cutting ties completely. I love Peter. He's so like us, isn't he? When Peter suggests forgiving his brother or sister seven times, he thinks he's being really magnanimous. He thinks he's being overly generous. He thinks Jesus is going to be pleased with this question. But let's listen to Jesus' response. And Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations there have 70 times seven times, which would be 490. Either way, it's a lot. 
It's an awful lot. In other words, followers of Jesus are to go on and on and on forgiving. They are never to give up on the goal of reconciliation. Now Jesus knows that this is really hard teaching. So he goes on to tell a parable that will give Peter and all of us the inspiration that we need to go through with this emotional hard work. The parable begins with a king who discovers that one of his servants has a very large debt. 10,000 bags of gold, our translation said. In the Greek, it's 10,000 talents. And back then, one talent was about 20 years of a day laborer's wage. So this is a vast, uncalculable debt. And when the servant is challenged on this, he, he begs for mercy. And against all expectation, the king takes pity on him and cancels the debt. It's an astonishing act of grace. Unheard of in Jesus' day, unheard of in our own. The servant is truly set free. What happens next? Well, this same servant goes out and finds someone who owes him money. And this time the debt is a triflingly small amount. Absolutely nothing compared to the first debt. And this fellow servant begs for mercy just as his colleague had done before the king. But this time it is ruthlessly denied. All the debt must be paid right to the last silver coin. Indeed, the debt will be thrown into prison until it is. Everyone who comes to hear of this action is appalled. The other servants are so outraged by this behaviour, they tell the king, and the king too is furious. And he calls the unmerciful servant back to see him and he speaks the line that carries the whole meaning of the parable. Listen to this. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Here is the crux of the matter. The king in this parable expected his character and his behaviour to set the tone for all the actions within his kingdom. He expected his people to follow his example. And Jesus says, so too it is with God. The truth is, every time we forgive someone else, it's as if we pass a a little drop of water from the bucketful that God has already given to us. Now, of course, we want to protest at this. You should have seen Elijah's face down the front when he heard this parable. Hang on a minute, we want to say. I'm only a little bit sinful. I'm a good person, really, but the person who's hurt me, they're really sinful. Why should God treat us in the same way? But in saying things like this, we are forgetting how the perfectly holy God sees sin. The difference between ourselves, who we think are essentially good, ordinary sinners perhaps, and those we deem to be bad and extremely sinful, is like the distance between Port Ellen here and Bermore. Down here on the ground, that feels like miles. But when that distance is seen from the point of the sun, 
It is nothing at all. You know, the Bible describes God's law like a pane of glass. If you break one bit of it, you break all of it. This isn't unfair. It is because our God is perfectly holy. He is spotlessly awesome. So any imperfection in our lives, however small it is, makes us less than his standard. We are all debtors in God's eyes, and it's a debt we will never be able to repay. We all need forgiveness, no matter who we are, and lots of it. And the wonderful message of the gospel is that God has done everything required to deal with the debt that we owe. He didn't just paper over the cracks. He came down and personally dealt with the issue. At the cross, he named evil for what it is, and he confronted it in the perfection of his son, Jesus died to deal with sin precisely because it can't just be swept under the carpet like we were thinking a moment ago. As human beings, we couldn't possibly save ourselves. We couldn't possibly pay off our debt. But Jesus has shown mercy and done it for us. As we put our trust in Jesus, we discover, like that servant did, that we have been forgiven. We have been set free. We are promised eternity in the presence of the king rather than banishment to an everlasting prison. This is amazing grace. And it's this grace that is to be the inspiration for all of our actions towards others. When we remember the forgiveness of Jesus, when we remember what he went through on the cross to achieve it, We begin to realize that we shouldn't even begin counting how many times we should forgive someone else. We should just do it. We should never give up making forgiveness and reconciliation our goal. If evil needs to be confronted, which it does at times, we do it with the love of Jesus in our minds, not the desire of revenge. So what is our inspiration for forgiveness? It is Jesus. And the incredible sacrifice that he made for us. So we've answered our first two questions. What is forgiveness? And what is our inspiration for forgiveness? Now we come to our last. What are the consequences of unforgiveness? What happens if we refuse to forgive another? The parable ended with a stark warning. I'm sure we all noticed it. But let's just hear it again. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all this debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers until he paid back all that he owed. And Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you. Unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. In other words, if we consistently refuse to forgive others, we will be refused forgiveness ourselves. Wow. I wonder what we make of that. Again, we want to complain, don't we? This is too harsh for Jesus to be saying this. This doesn't seem in keeping with the rest of the gospel. But no, this is no mistake. 
Because in fact, Jesus has said this exact same thing before. Do you remember in Matthew 6, where Jesus taught us the words of the Lord's Prayer? And after teaching us to ask for forgiveness in that prayer, he made the same challenge. Listen to this. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now the reason that we have a problem with this teaching is because we again misunderstand forgiveness and our deep, ongoing, personal need of it. Forgiveness is not like a present that we give to someone, no matter whether they're going to give any presents on themselves. Forgiveness is like air in our lungs. There is only room for us to inhale the next lungful when we've breathed out the previous one. If we insist on withholding the oxygen of forgiveness, refusing to give someone the kiss of life that they desperately need, then we won't be able to take in any more for ourselves. And as a result, we will suffocate quickly. The Bible says forgiveness is only available if we remain open. If we harden ourselves to another in time, we'll become so hard that we don't receive the love and the mercy that we need ourselves. And if we take any time to stop and think about this, we will soon realise that this is true. Think of the people who you know, and I'm sure you'll know someone, who has refused to forgive. That unforgiveness would have done untold damage to them. Resentment and bitterness, it enslaves us. It pollutes us. It's like a fire that burns us to a crisp on the inside. It hollows us out. And in the end, unforgiveness is fatal. It's a hard lesson, but it's an important one. And we know that it's true if we really think about it. As we read this parable, we are to remember, we're not the king in the story. We will never be the king in this story. We are just a fellow servant. And we need to remain humble because we will always need to be forgiven again and again and again. And to keep us humble we need to be prepared to forgive others. Truly the kingdom of God is for the penitent and the grateful. So today we've asked three important questions on this really important topic. What is forgiveness? It's not pretending everything's okay. It's not papering over the cracks. It's confronting sin, dealing with it, and stubbornly refusing to let the evil of the past affect the relationships of the future. What is the inspiration for this difficult and emotionally draining act? It's nothing less than the forgiveness that God has shown us through Jesus on the cross. And what are the consequences of refusing to forgive? We harden ourselves so much that we cannot receive the forgiveness that we desperately need ourselves. May we go from this place today inspired by Jesus, 
relentless in our pursuit of reconciliation and ready to offer hope where so much pain has gone before.